Before we begin, I want you to understand just how seriously I take my responsibility. The mere act of asking a question is the first step on the path to damnation. Heresy. The Imperium of Man was not built by those who questioned. It was built on the iron will of the Emperor, in the Orthodox, and above all, obedience. In our Imperium, we have a single institution that is pure enough to ask questions, and the Ordos of the Inquisition will now put you to the question. Welcome to 40 Curious, the podcast where each episode, with the help of a special guest, we delve into a topic around Warhammer 40k. So today I'm joined by Daniel Ehrman Maggie. Is that reasonable pronunciation there, Dan? Yeah, it's pretty good. Okay, that'll do. So when I was working on the podcast and working on the concept for the podcast, I put a post up in Facebook asking if there were any moral philosophers around, uh, which is a bit of an unusual request in a Warhammer 40k group but I got a few responses from various different people who were sort of saying oh you know I did I did an introductory course here or I did a, a theology degree or something like that and I was like yeah that's great perhaps not what I'm looking for and and then Daniel posted and said I'm not sure if I count as a moral philosopher I mean I did a master's degree in moral philosophy and I've taught a couple of courses about uh, moral philosophy. I've, I've done a couple of lectures, but I'm not sure that qualifies me as a moral philosopher, which I thought was just a perfect moral philosopher's answer, <laughs> because moral philosophy seems to be a lot about uncertainty. So, Daniel, can you talk us through your history in 40K? Because Sweden is obviously not where Games Workshop began. So how did um, the hobby make its way over to Sweden? Oh, that's a good question, actually. I grew up in a not a small town, but with like eighty thousand population, and uh, they actually had a store, not a proper games workshop store, but a game that had role playing games and miniatures and stuff. And uh, I bought my first miniatures there and started playing in that store. Okay, so it was sort of established already, and so even a relatively yeah. small town had. Yeah, and this must be been around ninety uh, seven. Okay. So it was quite established in the nineties here. Hmm. So is that because uh, in the long winters you need something to do inside? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, I know that during like the 90s, I actually did a sociology master's too, which I did about role-playing games, because there was this moral panic in Sweden in the 90s over role-playing games. Oh, okay. Was that like the satanic panic in America? Exactly. So they were interlinked. So in the 90s, a bunch of kids were doing role-playing games and games workshop games, and it was like the satanic panic. Ah, uh, sure. Yeah, and my high school, Talisman, the uh, the board game, I don't know if you know that one, it's a sort of old, one of the old GW products, was banned because it had some kind of encounter where you summoned a demon. And we had a fundamentalist Christian classmate of mine, and his parents, much to his embarrassment, took that to their headmaster and claimed that this was corrupting us and so it was banned so it just meant that we had to play out the back outside 
<laughs> it led it, it led it um, a bit of a sort of a, a cool cachet, which it probably didn't deserve. Um, I actually had Talisman. I think with two expansions or at least one. Okay, and so, so yeah. from there, was it forty um, k that really sort of caught your eye? Um, I started with Fantasy Battles actually, and I went back and forth between Fantasy and forty k. So I missed some editions of 40k, but since I was 12, I've always played one or other Games Workshop game, but going between them. But then I went back fully into 40k in 7th edition, like then I never looked back at Fantasy, and then Fantasy died, as you know. And since then, I've only been playing 40k. So you're not tempted by Age of Sigmar at all? I am, uh, but <laughs> I haven't like reached out and trying out any games or such. And I liked the fight fantasy setting, but I also kind of liked how they ended it. I know that a lot of people don't, but I appreciated that. Oh, okay. So what was it about the end that you think was satisfying? That they actually put an end to the setting. Like, people might have objections on how or why, but they did something with it instead of like letting it slowly die and just cancelling it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean... It is one of the things I, I actually really appreciate about them moving the lore on in, in 40k you know, with Gulliman and, and Dianari and so on, is that it's really hard to have everything at one minute to midnight all the time. And each time they want to ratchet it up just that little bit more. And I think that change is, is really refreshing and really nice. So I'm, I'm with you. I understand that, that, that that's, not, that's not going to be true of everyone. No, I like the progression. You can look back at stuff, but I've n I never play old editions of the game anyway. Okay, so you're not tempted to get the square bases out and, and, and play a few games? I put those armies away. I mean, they were fun, but game design goes forward too. I think the edition I liked the most was maybe third for 40k, but currently I think that 8 was the best. The products that they're releasing are more modern so to say. Yeah, sure. And in 40k, what are the armies that you tend to play? Currently, in the, uh, I have a cabinet behind me, but in there, it's Drukari, Croftwell Eldors, Harlequins, Sisters of Battle, and Space Wolves, and some Night Lords and Thousand Sons. <laughs> That's but a I have... pretty impressive spread. <laughs> yeah, and I have a corn Chaos Army, but I'm not so happy with the painting, and it, it's a bit old, so I don't play with it anymore. Sure, fair enough. With 9th edition, are you excited by the uh, Eldar stuff coming out? Yeah, I've been a bit torn, because I played Sisters. I started with Death Guard in 3rd, or Nurgle Marines, kind of. And mm -hmm. then I played Sisters of Battle, and then... Um, but then when I got back into 7th, I started painting Dark Elder. So I played them as my kind of main army. And then I got a Harlequin Force, and then I got some Crawford Elder. But then when they released Sisters, I um, I put the Elves away, and I started painting Sisters again. Well, because you had an all-metal Sisters yeah. army, didn't you? So I imagine there was sort of some mixed feelings with the new plastics. Someone obviously, in the end, welcoming them. But it must be odd putting the new plastics next to those really, really old metals. I looked at them, and I started painting, like trying my paint scheme out on some old metal ones. And I put them next to the plastic ones, and they looked like dwarfs. The scales didn't line up, so I was like, okay, do I want to stay with the old stuff? No, I don't. So I almost have 5,000 points painted in Sisters now with new plastics. Oh, wow. That's pretty impressive. Certainly compared yeah. to my output. I started Harlequins about four years ago, and I still haven't quite reached 2,000 points of them. 
and I do have some other things I've been doing as well, Drakari and some craft worlds as well. My dream is to run the Inari three-faction army. But yeah, I paint very slow. But you paint very nicely. Thank you very much. I wish I had more time. But of course, now I'm doing a podcast, which takes up time as well. So it's yet more a reason not to paint. Anyway, right. What are we going to be talking about in today's episode, then? Hopefully we will be speaking about morality and the different elf races. Sure. I think the subtitle I had to the episode was, what do you do when a god wants to eat you? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So when I, when I spoke to you, you'd written this little outline, and there were a few reasons why the Eldar are such a good faction to discuss with moral philosophy, and I'm wondering whether you can flesh that out a little bit. Of course. I think that the, the main thing is that they're, they're different society, but they're born out of a, uh, a different set of moralities. And primarily, I think we can use maybe the, the question, what do you want to do when a god wants to eat you? How do you avoid that? And the choices you make say a lot about you as a race and your morality. Sure, and we've got three different factions who are all reacting to the same core event. So we can do a really good compare and contrast. Yeah. Where, like with the Imperium, their whole deal is that we are monolithic and we respond to things in one way. And if you don't, we're coming to burn you. And the Eldar have these three totally separate factions. It's probably worth mentioning that we did discuss a little bit about whether we were going to include the Exodites, but came to the conclusion that there's not enough information out there so we're going to leave them out of this discussion. Yeah, and I think that the main interesting thing with the lore is that we can use the three different factions and like their approaches are very different through a complicated problem. While I would say that maybe if you look at Necrons and Tau, of course they can be infighting, but they're more similar than, uh, than I would say that the lore factions are. Yeah, sure. Because they're galaxy-spanning civilizations, the Necrons are infighting all the time, but they are more homogenous, and they certainly don't have the totally distinct societies, which have been really well fleshed out for the most part as well, that Eldar have. And so we are going to be approaching it from this moral philosophy angle, and I, I imagine there'll be a lot of people, including myself, who don't really have much of a background in moral philosophy. So I wonder if you could give us just a little bit of an idea about what moral philosophy is and how it's useful to discussing this type of thing. Sure. I think that, that maybe the best example is egoism. When you say that someone is acting egotistically in every day, I think that you would uh, assume that that person is selfish, that being egotistic is normally, I think, something that we would say is negative. Yeah, I mean, being egotistical is not generally considered to be a compliment, sure. Yeah, and while uh, approaching it from a moral philosophical standpoint and you're acting ethical egoism, then you're doing what is good for you, not exactly what you want. Like, I want to drink this soda, but it's healthier for me to drink water. An ethical egoistic or someone that acted in that morality would choose water over the soda. Okay. Sure. In English, we'd probably say someone is acting egotistically, so with a T would be the pejorative. Yeah. And so egoism would be a more philosophically correct 
way of talking about it. So if we parse those out a little bit as we go. Exactly, yeah. And is it more of an analytical tool? So you're saying these people are acting in this way because of their moral approach? Or is there an aspirational element to moral philosophy? I think you can use it in both ways. As pointed more of understanding, but like the early philosophers in Greece, they wanted people to be better humans too. So they used this like a tool set on how you should act and how you should. Sure. So it's a toolbox which you can get out and help analyze what's going on and then give you some conclusions. Yeah, and when you use it as a toolbox to analyze stuff, when we use it like this in the sci-fi fiction, we could always say that they're different races, they're different societies, so we have to um, use some broad strokes sometimes to get to the core of what we mean. Sure, and I've always felt that sci-fi in general is a really philosophical genre, because so much of the sci-fi that we read is about taking a moral situation and cranking it up and emphasizing it and then examining how we respond to it as humans in the 90s you had the cyberpunk stuff where you were starting to talk about really small intimate technology which is inside you and the idea of if we continually put mechanical parts into us at what point does that stop being us is a cyborg with a human brain still a human those those kind of questions and it seems that with 40k every civilization every race and and, and culture in it is presented with existential threats all they are existential threats in the case of orcs or tyranids they are pushed to their absolute limit and the backs are against the wall and with the eldar the common traumatic event to all three cultures is the fall and the creation of slanesh that's on them the eldar did that to themselves. They got bored. They created their own downfall. And then from the moment of the fall, every Eldari soul is subject to Slanesh's predation. And so the, the driving force of all Eldar cultures is now purely to get away from that. And so a lot of what we're going to be doing today and discussing today is about how the different Eldar societies cope with that and try to escape in the longer term and so there's the reactions you have and there's the costs of those actions that'll be really interesting when we come to harlequins because the other two factions in the end their souls are still going to be claimed by slanesh even if they hide away in soul stones or in kamora by just simply not dying in the end there's still that whispering pull of slanesh while harlequins have a true escape it seems and so my rather simplistic reading at the beginning is well why doesn't everyone become a harlequin because obviously that's the best outcome but as we'll see later it's not actually that simple because there is a cost and that's the complexity which you brought this subject i thought was fantastic so where would you like to start Maybe start with Asuryani, but you managed to hit a very important philosophical um, thing when you talked. There's a famous philosophical um, example, I can't remember the ship's name, but it's a ship, and you replace parts of the ship. How many parts do you have to replace for the ship to still be the, the concept of the ship that it once was? All right, so if, it, if you replace every individual part of the ship over time? It's still the same ship. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll take that. Okay, so we're starting with the Asuriani. The Asuriani are the craft worlders. They fled from the collapsing Eldar society before the fall, and they live on craft worlds, and they live by the paths of the Eldar. So 
their entire society is very, very much about discipline and about honing and focusing on one thing. So when they go to war, the most famous parts of the Suriani military are the aspect warriors. And so you have the aspect warriors who are the best at shooting. You have the aspect warriors who are the best at speed. And they concentrate entirely on one role. And so you have like parts of the poet and that sort of thing throughout their life. But an individual will tend to move between parts. And while they're on their parts, they'll concentrate on perfecting that and then move on. And within their society, individuals who become stuck on an, on one path are viewed in some way as being as sad figures, tragic figures in the end. And so that's the very, very brief overview of their society. And Daniel's going to talk to us about how that disciplined approach applies to their escape from Slanesh and, and their moral outlook. Yeah. When the fall happened, they were quite clear that they broke away from society and they wanted to form a society out of the people that wanted to live like them. The main topic that me and Tom have for the Asriana is egoism. They told the other, the other Elori that the way to surviving the fall or surviving Slanesh is that we should not give in to our temptations, we should not give in to our feelings. And we only want people that are like us in our society. So we will go on our cross-world ships and we will sail away with like-minded people. So they're not making an attempt to save the greater society. They were to make an attempt to save the race, but not necessarily every member of that race. Sure. So like they saw their way as surviving as the only way. And then they told people that this is the way we must go forward. Repressing one's feelings, like not getting stuck on a path, not giving in to excess, keeping yourself safe that way. And also, like, with the soul stones, like you were saying, Tom, they can postpone death, but they cannot truly escape it. And their escape is having these soul stones that captures their souls when their mortal body, if we're to call it that, gets destroyed. To argue from a moral standpoint, of course, it's your self-interest not to get eaten by Slanesh. But it also is good for your race if you can survive and do other chores in a dying race. So, when they're in their soul stones, how do you think the moral balance is between fighting as a wraith construct and exposing someone who is already dead-ish to that permanent death by having the soul stone cracked versus exposing the still living guardians and the still living citizens of a society? How would you look at that in terms of egoism? I think that if we were to look at it from an egoism perspective, the longer you can serve your race and the longer you can do something good for you, like fighting a war, the better. Since we know that they're slowly dying out, having dead warriors being able to keep fighting in this brave construct is good for your race, but it might not be good for you as a person. Of course, if the alternative is getting eaten by Slanesh, but there might have been there are other choices that they could have made, but they made this choice. So why did they make this choice? So just to push that, as somebody from the craft world, what would be their other choices, perhaps? Are we talking about going to become a Corsair or, or even... Like, yeah, or go to Gomorrah, uh, become a Harlequin. There are other ways of escaping death 
maybe the most tragic with the Croft Welders is not death itself, it's the life they choose until death. Because they have to walk the paths, they have to repress the feelings, they have to kind of be walking dead before they die, in a way, if you compare it to their, their cousins. So in a sort of a real-life analogue, are we talking about almost a monastic equivalent? Is yeah. It, is that they consider virtue to be the avoidance of temptation? Yeah, and of course there are people in our real world that choose that life, but being forced to make that choice and also being forced that if you die in your monastic life, if you can, you will keep served in a soul stone. If we're talking about positives and negatives, these drawbacks where you you are talking about the craft worlds as being such a buttoned-down society that they are sacrificing a lot of themselves, and, and you're talking about it almost as a little death. Yeah. So what would you consider to be the ways in which they gain from that? Is it purely the avoidance of Slanesh, or is there more to it? I think there's more to it. If we branch a bit from philosophical standpoints, we in the Western world are quite... I-centric. I'm focused on me, my life. But other parts of the world are more focused like my family first. And I think that the Osirian is focused on the society first or the race even first. Like, I live my life a skeptic and if I die, I will be capturing a soul stone, but my race will go on. I think they put the race before the individual, which is a quite nice thing to do. Absolutely. Um, and something else which struck me now is that they also have the Farseers, and they are the leaders of the society, and they actively work seeing into the future. So there is, even if it's not a clear plan to anyone observing them, there is an element where it appears as though those in charge of the society are trying to save their people. And so that's that communitarian aspect you were talking about, where they're serving the long-term interests of the society. Yeah, and they make the choices that's best for the society. They act in an ethical, egoistic way. What is best for us as a race, and if we all do our parts, we don't do what we want to do, like maybe Drugari would. They're more like we do what we should, what is good for us. And with viewing in the future, they also make choices that, I mean, we can see in the lore how they defend Imperial uh, outposts only to turn on the Imperials afterwards. They do what they perceive is good for the race, while it might not be clear to others. Obviously, there's the in-game and out-game reasons for that. In-game, which is largely what we're talking about today, the reasons which their society have and which the creators have put in. Outside, there's the history of Eldar goes back to the history of elves, which goes back to the fairy and the fae. And the fairy and the fae are notorious for being unreliable allies. And they've always, in all the mythologies that I know of them, I don't know what Swedish mythology is like with the fae, they are tricksters and you've got to be very careful when dealing with them and they're not to be trusted. You can say that that's something that the game designers wove into them and then what we're talking about now, the these kind of approaches from to society are something they built from that initial out-of-universe reason. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that they used the classic elf characteristics and built upon them in the 40k fiction. 
the more we discussed this and we looked at it together before, they used a lot of the classic characteristics for elves from other settings, and they built upon them very cleverly in the 41st millennium. Like you were saying, Tom, with the fickleness of the fae, but also the arrogance. I think that they pulled that in quite nicely. Absolutely. And one of the things which I've realized as to why 40k has this enduring appeal. Yeah, it's cool. We love the stupidity, we love the -the over-the-topness, but it wouldn't work as well as it does if it didn't have the underpinnings. And the whole point of the Fae in traditional stories is that they are the others, and that you don't know them. And that's brilliant if you're just telling a story from the point of view of the humans. But what you've got to do is if you are bringing them in as a playable race, is you have to delve into why they're untrustworthy. It can't be just because they're tricksters. I mean, to an extent, I think that's one of the reasons why I find Zinch the least satisfying of the Chaos Gods. Because why are they tricksters? Why do they do this? It's like, well, just because that's what they do. They're, they are inherently chaotic. They do it on a whim. And I think one of the things, one of the brilliant things about what they've done with 40k is that they've given races like the Eldar and the Necrons these deep internal lives which give explanations for why they act in the ways which the humans just see as sinister or they are terrifying unstoppable hordes in the case of Necrons, just you know, get up and keep on coming, or in the Eldar's case, this sort of tricksy, unpredictable angle. And the more I discuss it with people like yourself, the more respect I've got for the world building. And it's the thing which doing this podcast is just delighting me constantly. And I think I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Um, where were we? <laughs> you were leading me into something which we discussed earlier, like um, the classic fantasy tropes and why I think that 40k succeeded more than fantasy battles, for example, is if you look at the elf factions. The elf factions in Warhammer Fantasy were very stereotypical. Like the high elves were arrogant, but they were also good. We will not use the words good and bad that much in moral philosophy, but I would not use the term good to describe the Asuriani. No, and that's something which you definitely want to hone in on, because I think that generally they are considered by many people to be the most moral of the Eldar factions. So can you elaborate on that? Of course. I would say that they serve their race's purpose, and in that, they will do everything for the race to survive, which puts them at opposite end of chaos, which is the enemy of a lot. But they aren't good in that respect, I would say. They are arrogant, and they serve the race's own purpose, which puts them in a trajectory at the opposite of forces that we would perceive that are worse than them. But it doesn't give them moral goodness in itself. No, uh, not at least from my perspective. I would say that they do everything for their own benefit. They're a very good example of an ethical egoism, but their enemy is also the enemy of a lot of the galaxy. So that puts them on the side, if we want to call the Imperium good or not, but but the side of the the main protagonists, at least. Sure, and the the ones who we're most likely to empathise with because they're humans. Yeah, but like, let's say that um, in another fictional universe, Slanish wouldn't be their enemy, but we would have the craft worlds, and they didn't have to escape Slanish, but they would have to fight the Imperium. You would view them as alien and evil and... It's, I think it's the perspective of the relationship with chaos that makes people think that they're the good guys. And they don't represent an existential threat to humanity anymore. No. 
So to that extent, they're a little bit like the Tau in that there are other people higher up the pole in terms of enemies. And at least Eldar society and Tau society, there is some idea that you can deal with them as sentient races. Even if you're arrogant and, and so on, you can make an agreement. And much as the craft world might regard space marines as being monkey, they still respect the fighting abilities of the space marines because it doesn't matter if they regard them as being less intelligent. The fact is that they're still terrifying and capable fighters. Yeah, and and they've helped Imperium a lot. Like, they brought back Gulliman. Of course, you can discuss the reasons and the, the viewpoint of why, but it's a blow to the great enemy. Absolutely. So, I think that's probably covered the Asuriani and the craft worlds pretty well. Is there anything more you need to talk about with them for now? No, maybe we will revisit some parts of it when we discuss their cousins. Oh yeah, we'll definitely be coming back to the craft worlds as we're discussing the others and contrast and comparing. So, who would you like to talk about next? I think it's easier if we go to the Drukari. Sure. So, the Drukari are the elves that never stopped. They're in many ways what Eldar society was at the fall, is they are broadly considered to be living selfishly and without concern for higher powers or anything else. It's all about looking after yourself and trying not to die yourself. And it's almost the opposite of the communitarian aspect of the craft welders. You go to war and you feed on the pain and torment, so it's necessary for you to fight what you're not doing it for a greater cause than that. You're doing it to get the slaves, to get the pain, to survive to another day. And their way of war is these slave raids where they will pop out of the webway in great numbers on fast skiffs, sweep in, and they'll avoid large-scale fighting if they can. It doesn't mean that they're not capable of fighting very strong enemies when it's necessary, but they will try and avoid it, and they will launch these horrific, scary raids and depopulate entire worlds overnight, essentially, and then take them all back to Kamora, which is the city in the webway, where those people will be food, essentially. But food not in a physical sense, but in that their pain gives the Kamorans their extra life force. And so in classical fey terms, which we did talk about a little bit with the Asuriani changelings coming and stealing your children is a classical trope. Um, So, Dan, these are the good guys, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, We will approach a part of moral philosophy, which a lot of people I think have heard about, and I will try to differentiate it so we don't sound like two angsty teenagers. Right. So this is Nietzsche and nihilism is the pop culture yeah, version of this. Exactly. Nietzsche is, is not my favorite, but I think if we really try to understand the Drukhari through nihilism, I hope that we can make people that listen to this view them as darker than they are, but also in a bit more tragic. So the point I would like to make here is if no actions has morality, the actions might be a different light takes more energy to go running than drinking water but if they have the same morality key to them and it's nothing then the actions are the same like of torturing someone that it is to put on clothes it has no meaning and then things get quite dark well and it's also necessary for them you know in their own society this is the way they eat yeah 
And, you know, in the real world, many of us are meat eaters. And you can make an argument about ethical treatment of animals within that. The free range movement and those sorts of things. But in Trukari society, there's no such thing as a good outcome for their food. The food is the torment. There's no way of sanitizing it. But that's their food. And are they going to starve themselves to death? And since we know from the, um, the Asurion and also the Horlikins is that you have choices. Like, it's not like giving up maybe eating meat. It's like not torturing other people. Like, actually putting a morality on what you do. And the more they, the, the more they torture people, the more they have to torture people to keep going. It's like the world's worst rat race. And... That ties back, they're doing the opposite in many ways of the craft worlds with a lack of planning. It's simply about sustaining. Yeah, and the, the willingness not to change. Like, the fall happens, the craft worlders go off in their chips, and they are like, oh, we want to keep doing what we're doing. Apparently this is not good. Okay, um, let's blame the psychers and be done with it. Because I think that's an important thing that we can touch on here, is that they seem not to put a lot of morality aspects in a lot of things, but they also say that psychers are not allowed in their society. Is it, is it simply they blame them for the fall, or is it they, they consider it a danger to tomorrow? Yeah, it's the danger. Without making too much grim parallels to our own universe, it's like Germany in the 40s, you put the blame on a certain group of people, and you push them away. And it allows you to somewhat avoid your own responsibility for that, if you're blaming an outgroup. Yeah, and keep doing, like in the Drogaris case, we want to keep having the society where we can live the lives we want. Okay, we can blame these guys, and we go off into the webway, and we have what we want. So, returning to Nietzsche. Yeah. So, I wanted to read out the quote which he'd put in the outline here. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of the dead too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? And that sounds like it could have been said by an archon. Yeah, I think it captures them quite nicely. And in a way it feels easy to just call them nihilistic, but it's quite interesting, the society they've built. And I know that you will will be returning to this subject later on. Yeah, absolutely. And so what is the underpinning of nihilism then? Can we talk about a little bit beyond that surface level of God is dead and, and let's be angsty about it? How would you characterize it as a way to live? I hit on it earlier, the actions doesn't have any moral value, but it also adds to the point where they're in fact immortals, and their actions have no moral value. So what they do, in a way you could maybe call them more living dead, or maybe like, I think the term I've seen sometimes used is psychic vampires, but they keep on living, but their life doesn't really have any meaning, I would say. So with nihilism as a description of life, this idea that actions have no meanings, what then drives the individual? The way you're talking about it as psychic vampires, it's like it's just about continuing. 
So in terms of escaping from Slanesh, the Craftworlders are trying to save the race. And the Drakari are trying to exist and just not die. That's their endgame. Yeah, and sometimes in uh, moral philosophy, I, I wrote my master thesis on like what is meaningful in life. Raising kids or working as a doctor. I mean, you know for raising kids, Tom, that it's not fun every day. It can be quite hard and it, it's not great, but it's meaningful. They progress as individuals. It has a higher meaning than, than yourself. If you're immortal, but everything is meaningless, your life is essentially worthless in a way. The famous example would be Sisyphus. So Sisyphus in Greek mythology, right, was condemned to hell, or Hades rather, sorry, and and his job is to push a stone endlessly up a mountain, and when it gets to the top it rolls down the other side, and he has to go down and push it up to the top, and so it's a never-ending task. And they use that example a lot in moral philosophy and meaning of life, but I think that could be applied to the Drukhari, like... I've read the Path of the Dark Elder series. Of course, they have personalities and they say things and they get happy and sad. But like, if you view their society, I would say that pushing the stone, it's not fun. But you're just indifferent to it. But you have to do it. I think that would maybe summarize the Drukhari experience. Okay, so it's a sort of flatness of experience then. Yeah. So in sort of continuing to live as they did before the fall, is an illusion in some senses, then. Yeah, I, I think so. At least if we, we look at it through, through the, the lens of nihilism. Then, of course, I think that uh, Asriani would be very happy. I mean, of course, they do stuff that the Asriani doesn't want to, but they're not making it worse for the race either. I mean, they are sometimes doing things that Asriani want, but they haven't birthed a second slanish. No, although I think it is worth saying that although the Drakari extend themselves essentially to immortality if they don't die, and you have the homunculus covens who, with a scrap of skin from a succubus or something who's died, then they can reconstruct them and so prevent their soul from going to Slanesh. But that's absolutely not true of the majority of the Camorran. This extending your life to near immortality is very very strictly held to the highest echelons so the homunculus covens themselves and the noble houses but your general rat-grown drukhari um, or your street gangers like the hellions i don't think they've got any escape they are just going to die and, and get eaten by slanesh so while they might not be actively birthing another god they're sure as hell feeding the gods a lot of the time yeah, that's true. And that's an interesting talk, because the Asriani, they don't have children as often, because I don't think they gave a reason, but but it's essentially a dying race. Well, I think because they have such long natural lifespans, they tend not to have many children anyway. And also the ethical morality of bringing a child into a galaxy where they are going to be consumed by Slanesh is definitely somewhat of a factor for the Craftworlders. Yeah, and while the Drukhari then, they clone that grown more that they simply throw into the meat grinder for Slanesh. Um, and so we're talking about how the Drukhari escape Slanesh is by this torment. Yeah. We're talking about advantages and disadvantages for the craft worlders. How would you characterize those two things in the way they try to live their lives and avoid Slanesh? 
the advantage is that, that they can keep living the lives they want to, or if the life they were dumped into, like like all their psychers escaped in, in big ships and told them, you destroyed our society, you get to stay in it. But in a way, they get to stay in the society and live their lives that they want to. In a way, I think they're the most free of the three races. But also, like you say, it's all a power play. You have to climb the pyramid to be safe. And if not, you end up being eaten by a god. So you're free to act in whatever way you want, except that you're forced into acting certain ways if you want that life to continue. Yeah, I think you're forced into a horrific power structure. Sure, and this is where you're talking about not that they're sympathetic, but certainly that we should potentially feel sorry for all Camorans to an extent, is that there's a, a damage to your psyche that can happen when you're forced into that sort of life, right? Yeah, and I think that I would rather be be stuck in another kind of society than being free in that one. <laughs> yes, this is where you were talking about them as a tragic society, and it doesn't mean that they are good or sympathetic but that the things which they are required to do would always create that tragic result. Yeah, I think so. At the same time as we're discussing the, the classical fantasy tropes, I don't think they're evil either. Okay. I mean, all of them do deeds that are not nice in the 41st millennium. Yeah, and you said that we generally tend to avoid evil and, and good in moral philosophy. Yeah. So, obviously, they themselves don't place moral values on their actions, and they don't regard torturing to eat as a morally loaded thing. It's much it's much more utilitarian than that. But to us, as, you know, sort of outside observers, it's hard not to regard what they do as immoral and evil. Yeah. So can you sort of elaborate on, on why you wouldn't use evil? I think that if you judge something from outside or inside, I think you get a different perspective on things. They might not perceive their actions as having any moral value, like we were discussing, but if you perceive them from the outside, we see that they do stuff that, yeah, it's not nice, it's evil. But at the same time, if we compare it to like the fantasy elves in, in Wormer Fantasy, they were like worshipping Cain, and they were shunned from Ulfwan, and more actingly maybe passionately or with feelings, to me, I would view the Drukari more as indifferent. Okay. So amoral rather than immoral. Yeah. With benefits and costs, the assumption that actions by themselves have no moral value and, and it's just about the benefits versus costs, their way of avoiding Slanesh is in some ways much easier than Assyriani, because as long as they're inside the webway, they don't get claimed by Slanesh until they die. Um, although there is that sort of siphon, well, to get soul stones, it's quite a laborious process, which Craftworld have specific in-game units, which um, are tasked with that, because going to collect them is so dangerous. Um, so for those that don't know, um, soul stones come from the Crone Worlds, and so that's the inside the Eye of Terror. It's the old Eldar homeworlds. So going there, you are stepping into hell. And so I believe it's the Wraith Knights are tasked with going and collecting them. And so they will open webway gates and have expeditions to them, which are often fighting every step of the way against hordes of demons. Well, the Drakari can just go and raid a human settlement 
and bring back a few tens of thousands of slaves to achieve a result. And so it's much easier for them and much more sustainable in one sense, because presumably at some point the soul stones are going to run out. Well, humans, it doesn't seem like that's going to be a problem. I wonder there's other races that you can torture to. But also like with um, the Drukhari, I think that the society is stacked for the the ones with power. Like, it's much harder to probably kill an Archon than what it is to kill uh, an Autark. So at the very peak of society, you've got a much more secure way of escaping Slanish for good. Yeah, they can regenerate you and rejuvenate you and all sorts of things. Like, an Autark, someone could get a lucky drop on one, for example. And then you don't retain the Soul Stones. Soul Stones get broken... So there's a potential much higher ceiling for this Drakari way of life. Yeah, but but I think that the the end game as an individual is probably better. You will be immortal, and you will probably not get eaten by Slanish in Drakari society. While in Asriana society, I mean, sooner or later. Well, I mean, Slanesh has eternity, and you know, even in a soul stone, a soul stone is finite. Yeah. Okay, and so I think that's wrapped up Drakari for now. And so we're going to the third faction of the Eldari. And this is the Harlequins. Now the Harlequins are the followers of the trickster god. And they sort of existed before the fall, but certainly the fall is when they became much more prominent because all of the other Eldar gods, with the exception of Cain and Isha, died in the fall. Anisha's in the Garden of Nurgle, and Cain is in fragments at the cores of the craft worlds. So Kegarach is the only of the old Eldar pantheon who's still around. And the Harlequins sprung from travelling players, and their role is now as two things. They guard the Black Library, which is the repository of knowledge, especially about chaos, uh, and that's on a craft world which is hidden in the webway. And they also, they're a mixture of sort of diplomats and entertainment, and they put on these plays throughout Eldar society. And they try and tie the Eldar societies together, and, and there's definitely stories of the Harlequins creating alliances between the craft worlds and the Camorans uh, and the Exodites, and managing to marshal forces. The Harlequins themselves are fighters, all of them appear to be athletic warriors in their own right. But their primary role is as this sort of societal glue. Do you think that's a fair description? Um, Yeah, they are the ones that can travel between the societies. Yeah, and it seems there's a a freer movement of individuals between the other societies and Harlequins. And in some cases back, I don't know if you saw the Corsair preview this week. Yeah. They actually mentioned ex-Harlequins as being a thing and and I'd not seen many references to ex-Harlequins before. There's the one named character Kaiganil who is the sidekick of the Sisters of Battle character but other than that we don't really have a lot of information about ex-Harlequins. No, that's true. That's cool. I had missed the thing in the Corsairs about ex-Harlequins. Well, I think being a Harlequins player, the writing about Harlequins is fairly thin on the ground. There's a couple of Black Library stories, but much less like the Path of the Eldar books and the Dark Eldar books and Craft Worlds. They have a fair few novels and and background, while the Harlequins don't have nearly as much. 
And I think that's quite easy to justify because a little bit like we were talking about Zinch earlier is they're sort of, by definition, an unpredictable faction and they're meant to be inscrutable. And I think it's quite difficult to write them as they need to be. They're, they're tricksters even to the other Eldar factions. And also, we'll come to this, and is, is that one of the things you do when you become a Harlequin is you put aside your old life and you inhabit your role. And that's something which quite a lot of societies across Earth have done, is that there are travelling bands of characters. I worked for a while in Zambia, and they're nominally Christian throughout most of Zambia, but they still have tribal traditions. And the Nyao warriors, I was lucky enough to go to a village and, and see uh, some Nyao warriors, is that they very much are similar in their plays. Is that they will come to a village... And while they're wearing the mask, they are the particular character and they will act as that character and they will put on these various plays from, from the folk histories and the oral traditions. That's certainly not the only example of that type of travelling player who inhabit a role. Uh, anyway, another tangent a little bit there. But so how would you characterise the Harlequins as in this moral philosophy realm? quite interesting with um, assuming of roles and giving up identity then the Harlequins would be that turned up to 11. Uh, but I would say that they're altruistic in the sense that we, we were approaching. They give up their own identity to take a role which we we assume is at least semi-permanent. And they give that up for the reasons of others. They forsake their own identity it's hard to look at their motives, since they're so uh, fickle, but they are at least not doing it for themselves. So they're doing it for their... Well, you know, I mean, arguably, as I think I said quite close to the beginning, is they alone among the three major factions have a permanent escape from Slanesh. We don't know what form that takes, but it does appear on death that Kegarach whips the soul away from under Slanesh's nose. And that could definitely be considered to be a, a benefit. Yeah, that your reward might come in death, but you give up your life. But at least they do it for for reasons where they give something up. The the Drukarius we discussed maybe is stagnant in their morality or and in their society and they through the lens we've looked at it, they don't have any moral value to their actions. And um Asuriani make it for the race and I would say that the Harlequins do it maybe parts for themselves, but mainly for others in an altruistic sense. And as you said, the cost is pretty extreme one in that you are almost the opposite of an ego in, in that you're totally subsuming your own existence and, and, and your own identity. And it does seem, again, you don't know fully, but it does seem that when you become a Harlequin, you disappear from your previous life. It's not like you write letters home or go and visit. No. They are very much a society apart. And like you're discussing morality, and if you're discussing opposites, if you purely theoretical standpoint, we would put altruism at the one spectrum and then egoism at the other spectrum. So, so they would actually be at the, the polar opposites of the Asuryanin and not of the polar opposites of Drukari, if we were to look at this morality like in a bipolar scale. If we're looking at this egoism at one end and altruism at the other, yeah. how would um, Harlequins relate to Dark Eldar then? 
Well, that's the tricky part. Because through the nihilistic viewpoint, they don't look at as morality as having any values. Uh, and altruism is like you do actions where where you don't get much from it. Okay, you might get an escape from Slanish, but there are other ways. And the, like we said, the cost is quite high. So in a way, their society wouldn't clash. Like when they brought Harlequins into Dark Elder Codex, speaking game-wise, I was surprised. But when we look at it from a morality standpoint, they're not at opposites. Hmm. Okay, so it's almost as if they wouldn't be opposed because they don't operate on the same moral foundation. Like they're parallel tracks rather than a line which you're at one end or the other. Yeah, exactly. You explained it way better than I could. But the the difference is that the Drukhari might benefit from the Harlequin's actions. Uh, as the, the Asriani too. But I don't know how the Arlequins would benefit from the other races' actions. That's an interesting point. And it would certainly seem as though this role as the ambassadors and trying to tie them back with stories of the fall is to try and keep a memory alive of this traumatic event um, and, and prevent it happening in future. So there's an element of that to it. But honestly primarily i'm thinking the harlequins are the least numerous of the factions and they need foot soldiers they need allies and so there's an element of we need the bodies we need the firepower but from a i'm not uh, advocating this but if you want to escape slanish and they can escape slanish since they said that they would serve sagarash sagarash i say Kegarach, but Kegarach. I've, I've heard it said lots of different ways, so we know who you're talking about. Yeah, but I mean, okay, Slanish won't eat you, Kegarach will save you, you've given up your life, why not make sure you die quickly? Because your life isn't so much fun if you've given up everything. So like, they try to remind everyone about the fall, but they're not doing that for themselves, they're doing that for others. Okay, so you're almost talking about the old deathbed confession um, thing. Is like, you should live your life in Kamara doing whatever you want, and then when you feel like it's time to die, then you quickly become a Harlequin and then sacrifice yourself. Is that? I say you're not advocating it, but that's one way of trying to achieve an escape. Yeah, because you've given up your life to help others. You've given up your family. You've given up your identity. You're living life under a mask. You're traveling around, and you're trying to get people to not repeat the mistakes of the past. And if you die, you go to heaven, so to say. But your life isn't as fun, or... Yeah, I don't know how voluntary, whether you can decide to join the Harlequins, or if you decide to join, whether you'll be accepted. Because the recruitment into the Harlequins is definitely something where there appears to be some ambiguity as to whether it's entirely your own decision. There are certainly stories where they talk about the Harlequins doing a performance and people being summoned from the crowd to join into the dance, and then they just disappear. Now, that could be a voluntary event, or like the Shadow Seers psychically fine, but we, don't, we just don't know. But it certainly seems that kidnapping is at least sometimes suggested, and it also seems that there are some occasions when... Some people try and join and, for some reason, are rejected. Which also speaks to like their, their altruistic nature. They give something to others and not to themselves, in a way. 
Okay, so your own motivations or desire to join are somewhat irrelevant to the faction? Yeah, uh, and I think that like you could discuss the cost-benefit, but also like altruistic. The, the problem with altruistic from a morality philosophical standpoint is take charity, for example. If we're to be really mean, if I give money to, to a homeless person, that makes me maybe feel good. And if I feel good from charity... Is it really an altruistic action, or did I give money to be able to feel good about myself? So, so the problem with, with always when discussing altruism is that how it makes the person or elf in this case feel, or at least uh, affect them in a way. It could taint the altruism if if we use that term. I mean, with an action like that, certainly in you know, law, we differentiate between results and motivation. Yeah. You know, sort of unintentional acts versus pre-plan. And so with altruism, how necessary is it that it doesn't provide you with benefits? It depends, I guess. Because what you're discussing with results or consequences is intention versus result is, is also important in moral philosophy. Of course, there's two opposites that go head to head, which we could spend an episode discussing without being any smarter about it. But um, I would say that at least has a part in it, which, of course, escaping slanish taints it a little bit for the Harlequins, but there's also other ways of escaping slanish, and also some of them don't really escape as the solitaries... That's a really unique role within the Harlequin. So, as we said before, it's like you become a Harlequin, and as part of the deal, we don't know the mechanism, we don't know how it works, is that at death, the Harlequin's soul is whipped away by Kegarach and escapes Slanesh. The Solitaires are the only Harlequins who are allowed to play Slanesh in their plays. They are not part of, of a travelling mask, they will just appear um, where a mask is from time to time, and then they are allowed to do this play of the fall. And on the battlefield, they're supposed to be these astonishing warriors who are almost capable of taking on greater demons one-on-one. -on, -one. on the tabletop, not so much, but let's leave that to one side. Um, but on their death, they are consumed by Slanesh. Slanesh takes their souls unique among the Harlequins. This was something which you really, really wanted to talk about, is not just the nature of altruism, but the nature of heroism. Just bringing the end point to maybe altruism is that there are not many solitaries, but there are a few, and we don't know how many harlequins this, so it's like one in 50. Like, even if you become a harlequin, there's a risk that you'd still get eaten by Slanish, which makes the choice more altruistic, I would say, that there is a risk. Okay, so the benefits are you're more reliably going to avoid Slanesh than the other factions. And it's the only one of the three factions which seems to offer a reliable permanent escape. But it requires you to completely subsume your existence. Um, go back to that sci-fi conversation we were having earlier. Is in this situation, you've completely removed yourself from your society. And more than that is you've completely removed yourself from your own personhood and you assume a different role. And and in the law, you know, the whole thing about elves and Eldari is that they experience everything at a really, really high level. 
you'd have to think that giving up all that would be pretty traumatic for anyone. There's a psychic cost. I mean, a cost to your psyche rather than a, like an in-game psychic cost. And also with how long their lives are. They live for thousands of years. And I mean, it's, it's a lot to give up. Yeah, and you were talking before about the things which give your life meaning. You know, talking about children and family and ties. It's how you work within a society. It seems to be a lot of that. There's there's other things as well. I mean, you have to value yourself and, and so on. But but a lot of the things which give life meaning are those ties you build and the, and the society you build around yourself. And to absolutely give that up, that's a bigger cost than I realised before. Yeah, and being stuck playing a role your whole life. And by definition, those roles are archetypal they're not you know a nuanced performance so we're talking you know if your role is in a play it's not like a long-form tv program you don't get to be tony soprano over seven seasons and have all of these these amazing character arc these are much more in the manner of greek chorus plays or something like that where you are that one role and you're performing that or variations of that in various different plays but you are you are that forever you know, you don't get a chance to improvise as much and uh, and develop your role. No, which makes it more interesting with like the the ex Harlequins that we've seen that that uh, this life might not be for everyone, but that you also can jump the ship. Like you're not protected anymore. Then then what are you if you stop being a Harlequin? And hopefully, at some point, we'll see more of that in the law, and that would be a fascinating story. I'd love to see people take that on. The other question I wanted to ask you was the trickster god archetype. How does that mesh with this idea of the Harlequins being altruistic? It's a good question. Because it's not something that is an obvious bedfellow, is it? No, uh, really not. Mostly when we consider the trickster, it's maybe the death jester is closest to the, the classical trickster. But the Harlequins seem, bearing the death jester, they seem nicer than uh, the classical trickster, maybe. But they they give up their identity for the good of the race, and they try to do actions which will help others in a way, others of the race. Then, then you add the trickster variant, which makes them um, interesting. I would say. Yeah, I think that that's something which I might want to to sort of revisit at some point. I have a, a semi-formed idea about how the Eldar pantheon of gods map onto the Chaos gods, what the ramifications of that are, and I certainly don't have uh, any answers to that. But it's certainly it's it's something which I'm looking at. Yeah, and something that's very interesting with the Harlequins is also the Black Library. We have had hints that there might be uh, pages written by Sagorosh in there. Oh, explicitly. In the last codex, there's the book at the centre of the Black Library, which is wrapped in chains of light. And slowly they've opened it at the end of the codex. It's open. It's very much like camera pulls out and pans and dramatic music plays and we don't hear anything else. But also there's other stuff in the Black Library. Stuff which Oriman wants, for example. Why don't they just destroy it? It's obviously helpful information because on occasion they let in, they let people like Inquisitors in there. Yeah, so there's the relationship to what they do with information also shows them like they want to help others, which is even humans, which is not of the race. Back when they were first introduced, they were purely described as an anti-chaos faction and that they would work with anyone against chaos. 
they they were sinister in the sense that they would you know sort of medical slave soldiers and things like that like you'd have stories of blank faced imperial guard troops just kind of fighting at their beck and call but they were willing to work with anyone so this is definitely a sort of a continuation it's not as emphasized in the modern codexes as it was before but yeah they were certainly willing to work with humans but again i sort of look on that as well we can use their firepower even with the Inari waking up Gulliman, I think that it's largely couched from the Eldar point of view as this is the best weapon we have to fight chaos rather than being for humanity's own good. True. But the knowledge that they preserve, they preserve it for others, I would say. In that it doesn't directly benefit the Harlequins. Uh, at least from what we know. Or, yeah, except for the, the one book. Okay, so we've already touched on solitaires, um, and then you brought us quite rightly back to Harlequins because there was a lot more to talk about. So yes, if you were to talk about heroism and, and who you consider to be the truest heroes of 40k, I think is the way you put it. Yeah, it would actually be the, the solitaire and the, the avatar of Cain or the exarch that gives himself to become the avatar of Cain. Okay, so why would that be? I think they both emphasize sacrifice in an exciting way, I would say. They give themselves up, both their lives, but they also give their deaths up in a way, or their eternity, so to say. And I think it's a good reminder sometimes when you look at the 40k fiction that like, I view their sacrifices as the biggest sacrifices because they have so much to lose in what they give up. Mm. And so Solitaire is particularly with that that they have that seems to be a pretty sure escape and they're consciously giving that up for inevitable damnation yeah and also like in their life they're giving up their identity to be amongst other players and they play a role that is shunned from their own society and then they die and then their soul gets destroyed by a god yeah and the avatar so what happens when the craft worlds go to war is that one of the exarchs, who are the uh, the Eldar warriors, one of them sacrifices themselves and their soul, I guess, becomes part of the avatar of Cain. And so the avatar sits at the centre of the craft world and only becomes animated once there's this sacrifice made. And so this exarch is the other figure you wanted to kind of talk about a little bit. Yeah. I mean, an exarch is someone that gets stuck on their path. Maybe Asriani would use the term failure, but I don't know. They certainly regard them as sort of stunted. Yeah. And then one of them gives himself up and gives his, his eternity up in a way to temporarily be possessed by a splinter of their god. And I don't know how long the Avatar is active, how long it, the life force of the Exarch can sustain them, but... The, a battle, but not maybe much longer than that? Uh, I have no idea, actually. Answers in a postcard. Um, I have to do some <laughs> research on that, but yeah. yeah. It's a relatively short time, anyway. Yeah, and they give themselves up, and both the Avatar and the Solitaire, hopefully some listeners might contact you and tell, tell us that we're wrong, but I don't think that the, the terms of self-sacrifice uh, with that much to lose is that common in the in the 41st millennium and other protagonists. Not on that voluntary scale, certainly, that I can think of. I mean, 
you know, in, in so much of the fiction is to do with um, the Imperium, and so that's where most of these sort of examples of sacrifice that you see are. But you know, one of the aspects of Space Marines that I think is quite quite reasonably Games Workshop don't emphasise it because it's a really tricky moral point is that these are child soldiers these are psycho-indoctrinated child soldiers they have not chosen in a meaningful sense we would regard them as in a modern world when we find child soldiers like that we we tend to take them away from that situation and help them recover from that and so although their sacrifice is real I've seen in very good conversations where a planetary militiaman you know, is complaining about a marine and the Marine turns to him and says, once you've fought today, maybe in two years, three years time, you go home to your family. I will go and fight in another war. And then I'll fight in another war. And one of those wars, there'll be a bullet with my name on it. And all I have to look forward to is that. So don't complain about not being a Marine. It obviously puts in a much more gothic way than that. That was the, the drift of it. But they didn't choose to be a Marine in the same way that you would perhaps choose to be a solitaire. Yeah, it's it's difficult to say. Um, I'm trying to think of other examples in other factions. But but in death does duty end, unless you become a dreadnought. But um, for the Alari, it's it's not ending. Yeah, I mean, in most of the factions, there's an organised military. I mean, orcs don't have a they don't have a conception of sacrifice so much. I don't self sacrifice. <laughs> I don't think. Um, and of course, Tyranids, that's, a, that's another factor altogether, um, <laughs> is losing a cell of skin, a sacrifice. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it's that. Anyway, getting way off the scale there. So, yeah, I think we've covered in great and really fantastic detail the three Eldar factions. Is there anything you wanted to say at this point to sort of bring this examination to an end? No, I actually think that we rounded it out quite nicely. It was really nice talking to you about this, Tom. It was really fun. Right, and we are going to move on to the final section, which is, is this something that you think about when you're actually, not necessarily on the tabletop, but when you're thinking about planning your army? Is there any of the sort of the things which we discussed today, would that affect the way you hobby in the future? I think when I plan my armies. I try to get a feel for the army, and I try to either go with what is the actual army's generic trope thingy. Like, do I want my space wolves to be typical space wolves, or do I want to be them to be different space wolves? I think that after this discussion, I, if I would start another Eldari army, I would probably push them a bit differently like like the obvious answer would maybe be Unari there you could get a lot of um, modeling advantages and maybe progressing the army into one gigantic army that's very much where I'd come at it as well is that um, in my Unari army I look at and try and try and bring aspects of different armies into that and I have in, in charge of my, and it, it's technically my Drukhari army, and that's what the rules play as. But I have character that leads them is called the Lovers, and that was very much drawn from after the initial conversation with you about the hopelessness of the Drukhari, 
And I began to think about, you know, what if you're a hellion, if you're a street ganger, and you hear the Inari word, and suddenly it gives you access to an emotional inner life that, that you've never seen before, this idea that you might escape. And it led to this sort of very emotional backstory. I did that in the miniatures, and, and I'm really proud of the emotion which is there. That's cool. But the other thing was that, and certainly you, you said it, I think, to me at the end of the other conversation, was that this idea of Harlequins subsuming their own identities, that yes, you can have them as individual players, but, for example, I would never model a Harlequin with a bare face. No. And, you know, that's the significance of that Kaiganil, the miniature. Um, he's an ex-Harlequin, and, you know, you see his face. And yeah, so it obviously shows that Games Workshop designers, the, the world builders, they may not talk about it in precisely this moral philosophy way, but they are aware of the way it works, the way these societies work, and they're very careful to build consistency around that. Yeah, which is with the Horlicans, like if I were to, let's say, start another Horlican army and make it in a progression with Yanori, maybe you could make like a Horlican mask that's starting to, that you see the identity of the players because they're falling in line with uh, with Yanori. If we, s- no, if we see any new Horlican kits, it, I'm curious to see if they will have heads with uh, without helmets mm. and masks. Well, and that's one of the things when they've started releasing Aspect Warriors is that they all have the unhelmeted head option and that's supposed to be an Ari. And that does make sense on a on a theoretical level because the reason the Craftworld Eldar are on their path is to hide from Slanish. And it's, you know when they put their mask on, it's a little bit different to the Harlequins who do it the whole time, but when they put on their mask, they sing their songs of war and they become these remorseless killers but when they're Yanari they don't have to hide from Slanesh anymore so although they still have the skills of the warriors they don't have to put the masks on in the same way and so I do think it's more than just a, a simple way of differentiating between them that shows there has been thought into it very true it, these kind of thoughts just keep on popping up as you were talking I said I've never thought of it before the episodes prepared and I don't know if many people are going to listen to this but I'm having conversations with really wonderful people who are passionate about topics and listening to you and having a conversation with you has been just wonderful I feel the same Tom thank you very much um, I think that's a good way to wrap it up sounds good as before if anything we've said today is interesting to people or they'd like to come back and talk to us about it, you know, any feedback about what we've said today, that would be the dream. If somebody hears this who I've never spoken to and never met and they you know, send me a message or an email, that would be incredible. And um, I'm hoping that we will get feedback and we'll be able to do sort of, you know, response episodes or things like that. Um, I'm going to put the email addresses and our social media ways of contacting us just at the end in the credits. But on that note, I'd like to say bye-bye from me and Daniel. You have been an utter star and I'm so grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. So if anyone does want to contact us, we are 40 Curious with a K on Facebook, on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, Or send an email to 
40curious with a K at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time.